May the peace of Christ be with you. This is Molly Vetter, Senior Pastor of the Westwood United Methodist Church in Los Angeles. Welcome to our Sanctuary Gathering podcast. Here we share the sermon preached on Sunday as a part of our Sanctuary Gathering. We hope that in these words you will be drawn closer to God and made more ready to love your neighbor. As a congregation, we embrace the words of the Hebrew prophet that are etched into the stairs that lead to our building, the calling to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. We also believe that we're a richer congregation for the diversity of people who participate in our community, and we celebrate the diversity of age, race, gender identity, and sexual orientation that participate in our church. You are welcome in this place, and we hope you will participate. We invite you to do your own theology, to wrestle with questions of faith as we seek out what it means to be faithful Christians today. You're welcome to join us not only by listening in to this podcast, but we also invite you to join in our congregational life. Every Sunday, you're welcome to join us for worship at 9.30 a.m. You can join us in our beautiful sanctuary in Los Angeles at the corner of Warner and Wilshire or online via our church Facebook page. All are welcome in our midst, and we thank you for being a part of our church. May these moments be a blessing to you today. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? One thing I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in the Lord's temple. The Lord will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble, will conceal me under the cover of his tent, and will set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above mine enemies round about me, and I will offer sacrifices in the Lord's tent with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. Come, my heart said, seek the Lord's face. Your face, O Lord, I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, for you have been my help. This is the Lord, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians. This letter written by Paul to the early church in Corinth continues the lesson we began last week. It's part two of a five-week read through the first parts of this book, and it invites us to imagine ourselves a part of that early church, which existed, of course, before the Gospels were written, before hymn books were printed, as the church was trying to figure out how to be the church. The challenges they faced, though, it seems, resonate with those we still face today. I invite you to listen for the Word of God. Now, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos. Or, I belong to Cephas, 
or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel. And not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? O holy God, may my words and our thoughts and our lives bear the fullness of your grace. In your holy name we pray, amen. I am a preacher's kid, which means I moved around some in my childhood. We lived in one town for all of my high school years, though, uh, the town of North Platte, Nebraska. It's about four and a half hours from Omaha and the same distance from Denver. It sometimes appears on maps of the U.S. because there's nothing else nearby better to name. North Platte gained some notoriety in World War II because it was the setting of a canteen that offered baked goods and buoying of spirits to troop trains that passed through there. Thousands upon thousands of U.S. soldiers crossing the country for training or deployment during the war have memories of stopping at the North Platte Canteen and being met with care. But some decades later, Jack Kerouac passed through in On the Road, and he didn't even want to stay for a day. My experience in high school is that it was a town whose sort of primary culture and value was often out of sync with my own. The big festival in town, Nebraska Land Days, happened in the summertime, and the high school marching band would march, but the director would line the big guys up on the edges so that the band would be safe from the rowdy crowd. It was a sort of Wild West spirit, often, that was an appreciated culture in North Platte. It was a railroad town with the largest switching yards in the U.S., so a lot of people worked railroad jobs, which required a high school degree. And there wasn't a lot of emphasis on going on to higher education and the arts. I played in the orchestra in high school, which you can just guess wasn't the home of all the cool kids. If there's a hierarchy of extracurriculars, sports would be at the top. Marching band would be passably appropriate because it played in support of football games and basketball games. But orchestra was a collection place for those of us who didn't quite fit in in all the regular places. I started playing cello when I lived in the much larger city of Grand Island in central Nebraska, where there was a little more uh, esteem for fine arts education. But in North Platte, the orchestra rehearsed in a room that I think used to be a storage room off to the side of the high school auditorium. Our high school was built uh, 
in the 20s and had resisted updates over all of those years. Our orchestra teacher, Mr. Sanchez, did his best to keep us headed in the right direction. We weren't great, but we had some heart. We were a little rebellious, and I suspect it might have been rooted in the reality that most of us in orchestra didn't have a lot of places in the high school where we could exercise a lot of power. The kind of power as a teenager you want that's a little bit rebellious and a little bit setting your own destiny. So when we had substitute teachers, this is my confession, we were not good. The most regular substitute teacher for our orchestra program was a retired teacher. I think her name was Mrs. Robertson. I'm not sure what motivated her to continue to substitute teach. I suspect it had something to do with her commitment to offering quality arts education even to us scrappy fools. She kept showing up every time Mr. Sanchez was absent. And we would concoct clever schemes to disrupt her life and seize our own power. Chad in the viola section would declare, it's no repeat Thursday, and we wouldn't play any repeats. We'd switch instruments while she wasn't looking. I have this vivid memory of her standing at the podium in our little side closet rehearsal space, waving her arms to mark the time with fierceness and determination and saying over and over again the same refrain, listen to each other, listen to each other. As if the plea was coming from the depths of her soul. Can you people just listen to each other? I suspect she knew in that moment that it wasn't going to be an immediately successful strategy at transforming us into a great orchestra. But she persisted and she showed up. And she said it enough times that it stuck in my brain all these decades later. And when I read Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, and when I was reading from John Wesley's teachings on Christian perfection, I heard her voice echoing through my mind. Listen to each other. Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians reads with a certain amount of, I don't know, frailty, genuineness. Maybe it's the kind of authenticity that makes us more ready to believe him. I love in the verses that I read today how he says, thank God I didn't baptize any of you. And then as soon as he says it, he begins to think. And he's like, well, I guess I did baptize a couple of you. But other than them, I didn't baptize anyone. I have such deep sympathy for him. It's how I so often move for life, move through life, make a declaration, realize I didn't say it quite right, want to fix it up. Thank God I didn't baptize any of you, he says, except for the few that I did. But even then, you know, you got the point. It wasn't in my name. Paul is offering some advice, correction, coaching to the church in Corinth, trying to help them understand that it's important to be together, that our togetherness is toward God and not in small pockets of togetherness that allow us to form teams and allegiances. The same 
temptations persist today in the church as in other organizations. I hope you bear some pride that you find God and community here at Westwood United Methodist Church in Los Angeles. But I hope that you don't carry a faith that is allegiant, first of all, to Westwood United Methodist Church in Los Angeles. I hope that you find help in the words that I say, but I hope that you don't think of yourselves as followers of Pastor Molly. I hope that we as a congregation remember that we belong above all, through all, after all, to Christ. That it's in Christ that we are baptized and toward Christ that we live. John Wesley, in his plain account of Christian perfection, has words of grace for us preachers that I found special delight in this week as he's going on about the temptation to uh, claim allegiance to particular preachers and leaders In his contemporary time in London, he describes how people follow after a certain preacher or another. And then he says, I hope that you will believe there's something for you to learn even from the weakest preacher in London. He says, I hope there's something for you to learn even from the people who get it sometimes a little bit wrong or don't say it clearly or miss the mark from time to time. This is an orientation that's foundational for our understanding of being a part of the body of Christ, that we recognize with humility that every one of us is going to get it wrong, is going to see incompletely, is going to say a thing that we believe is true, that upon further investigation we realize begins to fall apart. A certain amount of this is inevitable as humans. As we develop from childhood to adulthood, the capacity that our brains have for understanding and naming and describing God changes. And we have to, at some points, let go of ways we previously understood or described God and the world that made sense to us earlier in life that no longer fit the ways we understand ourselves in the world, that no longer match the capacities our minds have to entertain metaphor and poetry and complex thinking that's shifted and changed the literal faith we began with. And a certain amount of this is due to the limitation of being human, of being located in particular times of growing up in a specific circumstance, of having a set of experiences that are ours. We cannot see or understand beyond the bodies that we're born into, the lives that we inhabit. Of course we'll get it wrong. This posture of confidently claiming, of course we'll get it wrong, feels so countercultural in a world where religious people are expected to hold on to their truths and defend them against any error. But we, with John Wesley, claim a different posture, a humility that says, this is God we're talking about. Of course we're going to get it wrong. Of course we won't see it all clearly. Of course we'll need correction. We'll need to change and shift 
the ways that we describe who we are and who God is as we come to see through perspectives different from our own. And this is part of the imperative of being together in community, the urgency of claiming our unity, because it's in community that we come to see God more clearly, that we have occasion to correct the deficiencies or errors with which we formed our faiths when we were left to our own devices, when we were embedded in a culture of people who thought like us or talked like us or used the same first language that we do. Instead, as we continue to move through this world and connect to the fullness of the body of Christ, we encounter people whose presence in our lives helps us see and understand the grace of God more clearly. And this is the motivation then for Paul in reminding us of the urgency of being together of holding on to one another, not for the sake of a great group photo or a stunning brand presence online that seems to represent the diversity of all of the people together that exemplifies our power and strength. But we hold these convictions with humility because we know we're gonna get closer to God when we see God through and with each other. This was so important to John Wesley, who taught and uh, spoke and wrote about Christian perfection. Last week, we began this five-week series that sets Paul's letter to the church in Corinth next to John Wesley's plain account of Christian perfection. John Wesley taught about Christian perfection throughout his life. This phrase is often misleading on first hearing we suspect it might have something to do with an expectation that we Christians will always look good and get it right. But this is far from what Wesley was talking about as he taught about Christian perfection. Instead, the idea is a way for him to speak about the expectation that we will let ourselves become fully loving that we will continue to be perfected in the love of God, not flawless examples of living, but humble incarnation of something far beyond us toward which we continue to strive and move and that will continue to shape us so that in moments And maybe even as we get close to the end of this life, we will find ourselves able to love perfectly, to love selflessly, to love as fully as God loves the world. As full as Christ's demonstration of self-offering love was and is for us all. As John Wesley taught about Christian perfection, he invites us to dare to believe that this is still being worked out. And it resonates so beautifully with words that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians when he talks about we who are being saved. I love that 
Paul writes about we who are being saved, not we who have been saved, but we who are participating in salvation as we receive and give love. As we work on perfecting love in us, we are being saved. And that salvation is not just for what happens after we die. It's for the sake of participating in love and life, in love and justice, in a world that looks like God's kingdom here and now as well. We are being saved by participation in the love of God and in the work of Christ. And in Paul, this centers on the cross. Paul, in these verses in 1 Corinthians, reminds us to live and lead and be the church in a way that prevents the cross from looking like foolishness. And the cross represents God's self-offering love, God's humble giving over and giving up for the sake of others and the world itself as the crowning demonstration of power, not power that looks good or amasses power, but power that gives itself up that offers itself over, that empties itself for the sake of love. This is the perfection that we're invited toward. And it can only happen when we do it together. There's no space in Paul's theology or in John Wesley's theology for anything that you could describe as Christian perfection that happens in isolation. Because we have to love another not theoretically, but practically. And the church is the place where we encounter each other, where we live together with people who make us uncomfortable and who see things differently than how we see things. In 1 Corinthians, it translates disagreements in the church as quarrels, which in my mind just seems so I don't know, almost like an idealized, idealized fight in a children's book. I haven't had a quarrel for some time, at least as I would describe it. Quarrels belong in another sort of era or another time. But I have had significant disagreements. <laughs> Whatever word works for you to put into this context to describe the reality that life in the church requires tension and disagreement and difference. John Wesley invites us to see those disagreements as opportunities for humility and openness to transformation. To never rejoice in being a church, being the body of Christ that's free from disagreements or conflict but to use our disagreements and conflict as another opportunity to practice with humility the gift of learning to see God more clearly in friends and neighbors and strangers and enemies. This is, of course, complicated when the practice of the church is tied up together in our differences when differences are about whether or not people ought to belong or to have authority or to be safe. And in my mind, there's a fundamental difference between our practice of 
welcome and hospitality and creating spaces that are not only safe, but brave and generous to everyone. And creating and living with the reality of differences, certainly in our United Methodist denomination at this moment, more so in other regions of the U.S. than here in our California Pacific Annual Conference, there's tremendous disagreement and division now over the future of the church. We have long thought over interpretations about human sexuality and how that takes form in our practice. And although our region is out of sync with the denomination's stated policies, the denomination's practices have continued to shift toward a greater inclusion and involvement of LGBTQIA persons in the life of the church. But there are significant powers in the church that have pushed to make the church more righteous by excluding people from involvement or leadership. And in my mind, this is exactly the opposite of what Wesley called for. If you believe the church can get more holy or look more Christ-like by getting rid of, for example, LGBTQIA plus persons, you have missed the mark. You have gone wrong because the church never gets better by excluding and pushing out people or by dividing ourselves off and saying, you cannot hold power in our church. Instead, the church continues to be more faithful when we include when we encounter and listen, listen to each other in the life of the church, when with humility we see the ways we have gotten it wrong and the ways Christ is present in the people we least expect to bring Christ to us. There is so much hurt in the world. And this morning, waking up to read of another mass shooting, this time here in Los Angeles area in Monterey Park after a celebration of the Lunar New Year comes with fear of certainly a targeting of Asian American neighbors in our community, siblings in our metropolitan area, a fear of the safety of our neighbors and friends and kin. As we hear of another example of how deeply we have failed as human community to provide safety and freedom and life for our neighbors and strangers and even those we might describe as our enemies, we are in need of humble confession. It's tempting to point out the sins that other people have. But it's in teaching about being together, about the danger of schism, that John Wesley has occasion to remind us of the importance of being people who, when they see flaws, failings, and sin in another, don't name it as a prayer that belongs only to that other. Instead, Wesley invites us to confess that sin as our own, to claim that sin 
as ours as well to choose a kind of solidarity that takes on things we didn't do as being real for us as well. In trivial things, I'm clearly able to see how it is that I'm quickest to point out flaws in others that are really my problem too. I don't know if you have this problem. That person annoys you because she talks so much and in complaining about it, you realize, I'm not, I'll just talk about myself. I'm annoyed by someone else who does the very thing that I do. I'm able to see it clearly because I know it's part of who I am. I think this is true. And even more so, there is in Christ an invitation to take on one another's sin, failings, frailties, and brokenness as our own for the sake of its redemption. Because we can't do this except together. We can't be being saved except as community. We are the body of Christ and being perfected in Christ requires we do this all together. We can't leave behind any person or any group. We have to do this thing together. And so now, as always, we seek to move toward love, which is my rephrase, an attempt at clarifying Christian perfection and what it means for us today. It's an invitation to move toward love, always. In every way, we move toward love, not alone, but together. May it be so. Amen.